Our current study is on Psalms 120 through 134, which are designated in the Bible as the Psalms of the Degrees. The title or theme of our study is Celebrating Triumph Over Trouble Through Trust in God. For anyone new to our study, Uh, you need to know that we're taking the interpretive position that these 15 psalms were compiled by the Old Testament king Hezekiah. Uh, Their purpose was to be sung in praise to God for healing Hezekiah from a terminal disease and delivering the nation of Judah from the Assyrian invasion. And also to capture in song... Uh, the lessons learned about trusting God in a time of crisis. The reason the 15 Psalms are known as the Psalms of the Degrees is because God performed the miracle of the Degrees as a sign that He would not only heal Hezekiah from his disease and add 15 years to his life, but He also, as I mentioned, would deliver the nation from the Assyrians. The miracle itself was God causing the shadow on the sundial of Ahaz, which was a timekeeping device in Jerusalem, uh, to supernaturally go back 10 degrees, which created a longer day. Uh, Today we come to Psalm 132, which I've entitled, Relying on God's Covenant. Now before we read uh, the psalm, which is printed there for your notes, uh, Let me make three important observations. Uh, Now, before I get into three important observations, you know, if you just look at the psalm there in your notes, if you've been in this study uh, since the beginning, something should just stand out to you right from the beginning, even before we read it. Anybody know what it is? How long it is. (laughs) Uh, All the psalms of the degrees tend to be very, very brief. So this is the longest psalm in the entire group. But here are the three important observations I want to make before we read it. Uh, First, we do believe Hezekiah wrote Psalm 132 as we believe, and I stated the reasons uh, at the beginning of our series, uh, we believe he wrote uh, all ten of the anonymous psalms that are included in the Psalms of the Degrees. Uh, Second, Uh, we're going to see that the psalm is a prayer of Hezekiah to God, of course, in a time of crisis. And we've been looking at that crisis throughout this study, not only his illness, but the Assyrian invasion. And the third observation and the most important observation is that this psalm centers on King David's vow to provide a house for God, to build a temple uh, for God, and God's reciprocal vow to bless David's house, which is known as the Davidic covenant. And we're going to talk more about that in a moment, but just to give you just a tad bit of background before we read the psalm, uh, you remember that uh, the center of worship uh, for the children of Israel was the tabernacle. And the most important piece of furniture in the tabernacle was what? The Ark of the Covenant. Because the Ark of the Covenant, that mercy seat, uh, represented God's presence uh, among His people. And most of you probably are familiar 
with the occasion uh, when uh, Israel was deep in sin, and they actually tried to use the Ark of the Covenant in battle, almost like a magical charm, like a good, good luck piece. And, of course, they had no faith in God. They were not following God. And they suffered a dismal defeat at the hands of the Philistines. And the Philistines actually captured the ark. And I won't go into all that happened after that. But eventually, uh, the Philistines were very glad to get rid of the ark uh, because of uh, God's judgment on them. And it ended up uh, with a man by the name of uh, Benanab and his uh, family. Uh, But uh, just at his home... Uh, just out in the country, out in the forest, out in the woods. And the ark literally remained there for over 20 years until uh, David uh, returned the ark to Jerusalem after he became king. Now, the significance of that is, with that ark isolated for over 20 years uh, out in the the woods, uh, the children of Israel just neglected worship. And throughout King Saul's entire administration, He totally neglected the ark. He could have had the opportunity to have brought it to Hebron, which was the capital at that time. But you know Saul's heart was not one after God. So there was just this tremendous neglect of worship over a long period of time. David, as you know, eventually becomes king. There's a struggle, him consolidating Uh, the country under his rule. He eventually does that. He moves the capital city to Jerusalem. And then then, uh, because of David's heart, you know, we remember David for David and Goliath and for what happened with Bathsheba and uh, you go on and on. But the one thing God remembers more than anything else was this man's love for him and his desire uh, to bring the ark back to Jerusalem at the center of life for the people and to bring them back to worship. That was his motive in bringing the ark back uh, to Jerusalem. And of course, as that ark was brought back to Jerusalem, shortly after that, uh, he had this tremendous dream uh, to build God a house, uh, to build a temple uh, that could, where the uh, ark could take its uh, residence and where the people could worship the Lord. So with that... Realizing, again, this is a prayer of Hezekiah in a time of crisis, and he's basing his uh, plea to God on this Davidic covenant that that took place over 300 years uh, prior to Hezekiah's life. So let's just read the psalm together in its entirety. Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf all his affliction. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not enter my house nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord. Again, this is his desire uh, to get the ark back in Jerusalem and to house it in the temple. Uh, and then he goes, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the field of Jairus, talking about the ark, where it was located, and then bringing that back to Jerusalem. Let us go into his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your godly ones sing for joy. 
And this is really the, the key to this psalm, these next two verses. For the sake of David, your servant, do not turn away the face of your anointed. This is Hezekiah's prayer now. He's, he's, he's looking at God and he said, God, for the sake of David, your servant, Hezekiah is saying, don't turn away your face from me. The one who presently is the anointed one is king. The Lord is sworn to David, a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony which I will teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forever. For the Lord has chosen Zion or Jerusalem. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her needy with bread. Her priest also I will clothe with salvation, and her godly ones will sing aloud for joy. There I will cause the horn or the authority of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself... His crown shall shine. Now, as we move forward, you need to hang with me, and you're going to need to be uh, patient, uh, because to fully appreciate the reason that Hezekiah included this psalm in the Psalm of the Degrees uh, will require us understanding the next statement that you see there in your notes, right below uh, the printed psalm. Psalm 132 is a prayer, as we mentioned, based on the Davidic covenant, which is found in 2 Samuel 7. So it's important to understand three very significant truths about the Davidic covenant before we go further. So please take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel 7. And what I want us to do is to read the verses out of the narrative that relate to the Davidic covenant. And then we will point out the three significant truths about the covenant. And I wish we could linger longer here in uh, 2 Samuel 7, but we're going to just focus on the actual uh, covenant, uh, following God, uh, making this vow to David. I wish we had the time to see David's response, this, this beautiful humility of David and, uh, and, and adoration and thanksgiving of God. But uh, let's begin reading at verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Now, it came about when the king, that's David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his, of his enemies. And let me just pause right there. David is not quite 40 years old at this point. Again, he has consolidated the kingdom under his rule. He has defeated all of their enemies at this point. He's moved, the capital used to be Hebron, he's moved it to Jerusalem. They have built him a beautiful palace there, and, and he's just knowing prosperity. He's knowing uh, peace after many, many years of adversity. Because you remember, for over a decade, he was a fugitive on the run in the Judean wilderness from Saul, who was envious of him and desiring to kill him. And, uh, and then uh, once he did become king, there were tremendous struggles, like I said, in consolidating the people and defeating the Philistines and some of the other enemies. So he's, he's in Jerusalem. Everything's going well. He's at rest, close to 40 years of age. And the king said to Nathan, verse 2, uh, to the prophet, see now, 
This is David speaking. See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. In other words, a very nice home. But the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Now, at this point, he has already moved the ark to Jerusalem. Uh, And so it is there. Uh, Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, uh, the, the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, uh, go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Verse 7, wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So bottom line, it's God's polite way of God saying no. David saying, I desire to build you a home for the ark. I desire to build a temple. And again, God's polite way of saying no. Actually, he doesn't give the reason why he did not permit David. Of course, you know, although he did not permit David, who did he allow to build it? Solomon, his son. And we'll see that right now. Now, beginning of verse 8, here's God's covenant with David. And it's amazing. Think about it. Here David is coming to God all excited because of his, just out of his deep passion and love for God. And he says, God, I want to build you a home. I want to build you a temple where we can house the ark, which can be the center of worship here among the people. And then God politely says to him, no, but I'm going to build you a house, David. I'm going to build you a dynasty that will last forever. Just, 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 just amazing. Verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pastor, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Verse 11, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. The Lord will make a house for you, David. Verse 12, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, talking about David's death, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Don't miss this next word, forever. Verse 14, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Verse 16, your house 
and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Now, go back to your notes and get down these three significant truths about the Davidic covenant. Number one, it was God's promise to David that his house, kingdom, and throne would be established forever. Forever. Uh, Three different times, uh, that word forever is mentioned. Verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In uh, verse 16, you find it twice. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. The second truth, the covenant is unconditional. The covenant is unconditional. Now, inside the covenant, and I'm sure you noticed it, there is a provision against the sin of David's descendants in verse 14. But this is not a condition on which the fulfillment of the covenant depends as indicated in verse 15. Look again at those two verses. Verse 14 is referring not just to Solomon, as we're going to see, but all of David's descendants going forward. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Uh, When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, And then let me add verse 16 again for emphasis. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, this truth is confirmed, and it's reinforced in Psalm 89, verses 28 and 27. And let me read those verses for you. Psalm 89, verses 28 and 37. God is speaking, says, my loving kindness... I will keep for him forever, referring to David. My loving kindness I will keep for David forever. And my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever. And his throne is the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod, and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not break off my loving kindness from him, from David, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful. The third very significant truth about the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant was a major development in prophecy because God's guarantee that David's kingdom and throne would be established forever is fulfilled in Christ. The Davidic covenant was a major development in prophecy because God's guarantee that David's kingdom and throne will be established forever is fulfilled in Christ. That's why it's unconditional, because it rests on Christ. Now, as you know, Christ was one of what? David's descendants. Uh, You see that in both uh, Matthew and Luke's genealogy of Christ. Uh, Matthew's genealogy actually begins 
by saying the book of the genealogy of Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, listen, listen to those next verses that you see in your notes. It just drive home this fact that the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant is when Christ will assume the throne and establish David's kingdom forever. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us. Who's that referring to? Jesus, of course. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his, in government, of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. And Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. And then Luke chapter 1, related to the birth of Christ. This is part of Gabriel, the angel's message to Mary. Uh, verses 31 through 33. He says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Then you, tra you fast forward to the book of Acts. Now, there are other verses we could emphasize. I'm just giving you a sampling. Acts chapter 2, verses 29 through 31. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, this is Peter's preaching. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he, David, looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Then in the very last chapter of the entire Bible, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16, we read, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So the point we're making is the covenant is ultimately fulfilled in Christ and, of course, at his second coming when he uh, defeats the forces of Antichrist, establishes his throne in Jerusalem, and he says that kingdom will last forever. So to sum up the Davidic covenant, just to sum it up, it was God's unconditional promise to David that his throne would always be occupied by one of his descendants. And though the throne could possibly be su suspended for a time uh, due to the sin of his descendants, for example, the Babylonian captivity, when God had to judge his people. 
and they've thrown was uh, suspended uh, to this very day. He's, uh, God would eventually place Christ on David's throne and establish an eternal kingdom. And doing this out of his love for David. The significance of all of this now to King Hezekiah, of course, is what? Hezekiah was one of David's descendants. That's the significance. So every promise that God swore to David was given also to what? All of Hezekiah, all of David's descendants. So the significance is that Hezekiah, again, is one of David's descendants to whom the promises applied. Now, with that background to the Davidic covenant, look back in your notes at uh, the printing of Psalm 132. And I'm just going to give you a very quick summary of the psalm, and it is absolutely beautiful. The, this psalm, the, the symmetry of it, the, the beauty of it, when, when you see, see the simplicity of it, the psalm is clearly divided into two corresponding halves. In the first half, verses 1 through 10, what you have is Hezekiah asking God to answer his prayers based on the appeal for God to honor David by fulfilling the promises he made to David. In the second half, verses 11 through 18, you have God answering Hezekiah's prayer based on what he swore to David in the Davidic covenant. So notice how the two halves perfectly correspond. In verses 1 through 5, you have David's vow to provide God a house. Again, look at that again. Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf, all of his afflictions, how he swore, David swore to the Lord, and he vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely, I'm not going to enter my house. I'm not going to lie on my bed. I'm not going to give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my until I find a place, a house a building for the Lord, a dwelling place for that ark for the mighty one of Jacob. Now, God responds, again, the two halves correspond. First is the prayer, and then here's God's response. Verses 11 and 12, he responds with his vow. His vow to what? Bless David's house. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your womb, I will set upon your throne. In verses 6 and 7, you have David transporting of the ark to Jerusalem, which corresponds to verse 13 with God declaring, for the Lord has chosen Zion, has chosen Jerusalem. He has desired it for his habitation. In verse 8, you have the prayer, arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. In verses 14 and 15, God answers the prayer by declaring, this is my resting place forever. Here will I dwell for I have desired it. In verse 9, you have the prayer, let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your godly ones sing for joy. In verse 16, you have God's answer to the prayer, her priest also I will clothe with salvation and her godly, godly ones will sing aloud for joy. In verse 10, Hezekiah, being one of David's descendants, prays for the sake of David your servant, do not turn away your face from me, your anointed, at the present time. He finds God's answer to his prayer in the last two verses of the psalm, verses 17 and 18. There I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine, notice, anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall shine. So, 
Bottom line, what you have is Hezekiah in a time of great crisis, as we've looked at throughout all these studies, relying on deliverance from God on the basis of covenant promises God made to David over 300 years earlier. Now, all of this really comes together when we, looked at a, when we look at a crisis that Hezekiah was facing that we have not yet discussed in our study. We've talked about his illness. We've talked about the Assyrian invasion. But there is a third crisis uh, that I've saved to this point. I could have easily alluded to it earlier uh, that from Hezekiah's perspective may have been the greatest crisis in his life that he ever experienced. And you'll discover it in the historical background. Let's just read it. Our time's going quickly. We'll just read it. Very little comment. When Hezekiah was told by God he would die from his illness, which we've already looked at, Hezekiah was childless. There was no heir to David's throne. Hezekiah must have questioned How can I die without an heir to the throne in light of God's promise to David that one of his descendants would continue on the throne? So in his distress, Hezekiah placed his trust in God to keep the covenant he made with David. As we've already noted, the heart of Hezekiah's prayer is verses 10 and 11. For the sake of David, your servant. Do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body, I will set upon your throne. Just as Hezekiah trusted in Jehovah's promise of deliverance from the Assyrians, as he trusted in Jehovah's promise for recovery from his illness, he trusted Jehovah's promise to David that his descendants would occupy the throne forever. And God answered Hezekiah's prayer when three years after he recovered from his illness, God provided him a son. You see what we're saying here? When he, he, remember the prophet Isaiah came to him and said, Hezekiah, you're not going to recover from this illness. You're going to die. You're not going to live. And that took him in great distress. I mean, man, he's, he's thinking, no, wait a minute. There's David, and then there was Solomon, and Rehoboam, and Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. I mean, is the line going to be broken with me? The line of David? No, it can't happen. God swore. So he put his trust in God. He put his trust in God that he would not only heal him, he had to heal him, to give him a child, but he would heal him and he would give him a child and he would deliver the nation from the Assyrian uh, invasion. Three le- uh, four lessons to be learned for today. We'll have to move through these quickly just to apply it. And, and I want to put the focus on placing faith in the promise of God. And this first point, the ability to believe a promise lies in my knowledge of the promiser. The ability to believe a promise lies in my knowledge of the promiser. Therefore, the key to growing in faith is focusing on my relationship with God by learning God's word, trusting God's promises, and obeying God's commands. 
The simple point that I'm making is this man Hezekiah was able to trust God because prior to the crisis, he had a history of walking with God. There was a relationship. What happens with us so, so often, we neglect God. Just like the Israelites for over 20 years had the ark stuck out in the woods and neglected worship. And then crisis hits our lives, and what happens? We don't have any foundation. We panic. There's no faith. There's no confidence. And there's no faith and there's no confidence. The problem's not with God. God is faithful. His promises are true. The problem is with Andy Merritt that I've neglected my relationship with God. It's not been a priority in my life. And I can't seem to find that confidence. And the reason is, it's very simple. The ability to believe a promise lies in my knowledge of the promiser. In other words, you don't have to make this complicated. Think about human relationships. The only people you trust, uh, uh, believe in your life is, is the people that what? That have proven they can be trusted. And that's what happens when you're walking with God. Look, look, look at how Hezekiah's life is characterized in 2 Chronicles 31, uh, 31 and 32. And thus Hezekiah, this, this, now this, is, this is God characterizing this man, did what was good, right, and true before God. And every work which he began in the service of the house of God, in law and commandment, seeking his God, he did with all of his heart and prospered. Uh, we won't read the next passage. God actually, in giving his evaluation of Hezekiah, said, there's never been a king. In all of Judah's history that has desired to worship me as this man. Now, the point I'm trying to make is, I'm not trying to say it's our performance that earns God's favor so that he enacts his promise on our behalf. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm trying to say is God is faithful. And God is true to his promises. I'm simply making the statement. Is the reason we so struggle with believing the promises of God in times of crisis. Is this the simple reason we've neglected our relationship with God. And God wants us to teach us to walk to walk in, in faith. Um, look at the second truth. We, we've emphasized this in previous lessons, uh, but I thought it would be good to get it on paper. Number two, faith is weighing the human impossibility of my circumstances against the divine impossibility of God breaking His Word. And then coming to the only reasonable conclusion, faith is not a leap of faith. No, it's very reasoned. If God promised it, it is good as done. So faith is weighing the human impossibility of my circumstances against the divine impossibility of God breaking His Word and then coming to the only reasonable conclusion. If God promised it, it is as good as done. See, go back to Hezekiah. Listen to me now. This, this is the key. Hezekiah got sick. He could feel that he was sick. He could feel his life weakening and moving towards death. With his physical eyes, he could see those stinking Assyrians and their power and their brutality. He knew they didn't have the ability militarily to stand up against them. 
This man was with the empty arms. He had no child. He was struggling with that emotion. So here this man is. He's feeling physically the depths of his sickness. He can see these stinking Assyrians with his eyes. He's struggling emotionally over the fact that he's, he's without child. There is no heir to David's throne. So what does he do? He puts his faith in God's promise. Again, going back to Psalm 132, verses 10 and 11. He prays for the sake of David, your servant. Do not turn away the face of your anointing. He's talking about himself. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of, the, of your body, I will set upon your throne. What does it say in Hebrews 11.1? 1? Faith is the assurance of what things hoped for and the conviction of things what? Not seen. When God told Hezekiah he would be healed, he didn't immediately feel that. When God told him he would be they would be delivered from the Assyrians, all he could see was those Assyrians, mighty and strong. And, he, and although there was this promise about David's descendants, he was without child. And all I'm trying to say is what this man did, he said, I'm going to put my confidence in God. Because God is greater than anything I can feel. I'll say that again. God is greater than anything I feel. Anything that I can see or anything that I'm struggling with or hurting with. So I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him. And then very, very quickly, the steps to faith. And this is just taken directly from Hebrews eleven six. We don't need to make it complicated. I come to God totally dependent upon him alone. In other words, as we've talked about in other lessons, I get all those crutches kicked out from underneath me. Well, I'm not having other security blankets where I'm trying to trust in God and something else as well. No, I'm, I come to God totally dependent upon Him alone. Second, I believe in God with the assurance He's able. That there's nothing impossible for God. And then I count on God to keep His Word and fulfill His promises. Hebrews 11:6. And without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. So I come to God totally dependent upon Him. I believe in God with the assurance that He's able, and I count on God to keep His, prom to keep his word and fulfill His promises. Now, the fourth thing. You say, well, man, I wish God had made a covenant with me like He made with David. Well, He has. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you are God's child, He has entered a covenant with you. And, uh, and God's covenant, uh, that fourth truth, God's covenant with all of his children is Hebrews 10, verses 14 through 23. Let me read these verses for you. Uh, you're welcome to turn there in your Bibles. Hebrews 10, verses 14 through 23. This is God's covenant with you if you are a child of God with every one of his children. For by one offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for what? All time, those who are sanctified. That's you and I that have placed our faith in Christ. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and on their minds I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's already been taken care of through the punishment of Christ, through the sacrifice of Christ. Verse 19, therefore, brethren, 
Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the, fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. Can you believe that Jesus has forgiven all your sins and will remember them no more? Do you understand what that means? Nothing can ever alter his disposition of love toward you. Nothing can ever alter his disposition of love towards you. His loving kindness will never forsake you. It will never be cut off. Doesn't mean he won't discipline you. Doesn't mean he won't chastise you. But it's not for punishment. He's thinking again of your future. Of you accomplishing your plans and purposes for his life. And knowing true joy in that relationship and presence of God. Can you believe that? He's put his word on your heart. He's given you a new heart that hungers and thirsts after God. That's why you seek him. That's why you desire him. And he wants you to feed that heart with his word. He wants your heart to put his trust in him and build those muscles of faith. And then, of course, you have what? You have access to his presence 24-7, something the Israelites never knew. You know, only one time a year could that high priest go into the Holy of Holies. One time a year, just one man. And even then, you remember, he had bells around his ankles, tied a rope to his uh, ankle. Why? Because they didn't hear the bells ringing anymore. They knew something went wrong, and he dropped dead in God's presence. And they'd have to yank him out. Well, you and I have 24-7 access to the presence of holy God. Not on the basis of our performance. Even when, I'm, even when I'm at my worst, when I totally fail God, I have the freedom to come to His presence. Now again, I need to realize I'm coming into the presence of a holy God. I can't trifle with that holy God. If I do, there will be discipline. There will be change. I want to come to His presence to acknowledge my sin, to confess my sin, to avail myself of His grace, of His power, to not only know freedom from the penalty of sin, but the very power of sin to walk in a new life, to walk in righteousness. And that is the right of every child of God through the covenant that he has entered with us. So, I trust this is meaningful for you. I trust that, again, you realize the ability to believe a promise is in your knowledge of the promiser. That the key is your personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, yes, you will be faced with many what appears to be human impossibilities. You can feel it. You can see it. You can put your arms around it. But are you going to believe that or believe the impossibility of God breaking his word? And say, if God said it, it is good as done. And then are you going to uh, come to him totally dependent, believing on him with the assurance he's able, counting on him to fulfill his promise, knowing that he's entered a covenant with you, and he'll never fail you forever, everlasting. Father, thank you uh, for uh, this precious message uh, where we learn much from Hezekiah that uh, uh, instead of panicking in his crisis, he put his trust in you. Uh, and he put his trust in you at a time when he had not yet seen the fulfillment of the promise. And what we acknowledge in the frailty of our humanity that's the most difficult time for us. 
It's uh, when that crisis hits, we get in the middle of that crisis, and it doesn't seem to be getting better. It just seems to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And when our faith is tested, that, that's, that's our struggle. We acknowledge that. And that brings us right back uh, to the need of your grace uh, to stay close to you, uh, to know intimacy with you. Again, uh, realizing the ability to believe uh, the promise of anyone is, is, is knowing the one making the promise. And so, Lord, uh, therefore, we simply acknowledge this morning our greatest need is to know you, is to grow in our understanding of you, to grow in our relationship uh, with you. Uh, so, Lord, our prayer is simply open the eyes of our hearts that we would see Jesus in his beauty, majesty. And seeing him, we would realize uh, what is the hope of our calling in Christ, uh, all the riches you've deposited in us that we can appropriate that, is, that it's ours in Christ and the exceeding greatness of that power that works in us. And may we know that power at work in us, both to will and to do, of your good pleasure. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.